Growing a business brings pressure. It's not easy to maintain momentum and still keep employees engaged. Fortunately, there's Insperity. Their scalable HR solutions help me with hiring, training, HR administration, and compliance while giving my employees competitive benefit options. When my people are able to thrive, my business can adapt and prosper. With Insperity, nothing seems impossible. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. Welcome back to the Great Unsolved Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis, and this week we are looking at the part two of the JonBenet Ramsey murder. Last week we looked at the timeline and the autopsy and some police and FBI beliefs within the case. So this week we are looking at some individual pieces of evidence like the pineapple bowl, the basement window, the ransom note, and the flashlight as well as some suspects in the case, which I mostly focus on the family because, like I talked about in the last episode, the DNA in this case isn't a huge factor, in my opinion. Before we jump into that, remember to follow us at Great Unsolved on Twitter, at Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram. You can search Great Unsolved on Facebook and find our Facebook group and our Facebook page, All of those links will be in the description of the episode as well, so be sure to check those out. Also, we have a Patreon, which is in the description as well, and that has monthly bonus episodes, Patreon-only episodes, and a ton of other stuff, no matter what tier you join. If you didn't know, my husband and I started another podcast, which is called Infinite Intrigue. It is kind of an oddities podcast, so we go over conspiracies, cryptids, different weird stuff like that. And last week was our first full episode. We discussed ghosts and the theories that go with ghosts, the history, and some ghost encounters. So if you like that kind of stuff, that link will also be in the description of this episode. So before we get into the different pieces of evidence and the suspects, I want to recap what I said about the DNA evidence in this case. I don't think we should really regard it in this case. It has never matched to any suspects or any people close to the case or anyone in the criminal database. 90 to 94% of jurors find that DNA evidence is very reliable. And if you listen to me and other true crime podcasters, A lot of us lean towards DNA evidence being the best, but it really isn't that reliable. There is rarely, if ever, a 100% match. And if the match is less than 100%, we can't really regard that DNA as any solid proof. The former Boulder police chief, Beckner, said, quote, exonerating anyone based on a small piece of evidence that has not been proven to even be connected to the crime is absurd in my opinion. You must look at any case in the totality of all the evidence, circumstances, statements, etc. in coming to conclusion. So this is why when we get to the suspects portion, I'm going to be looking at suspects that have, quote unquote, been cleared in the case 
based on not matching the DNA evidence because the DNA could not even be connected to the crime at all. We don't have any proof saying it actually is. If you haven't listened to the first episode in the JonBenet Ramsey case that I did, I would suggest going to do that, but here's a little summary. December 25th of 1996, JonBenet, her two parents, and her brother got home to their house at around 10 p.m. after attending a Christmas party at their friend's house. Supposedly, JonBenet was asleep, so her father carried her upstairs and put her into bed. Supposedly, the other three also went to bed very close after. Once everybody was in bed, we don't really know what happened, because obviously this case is unsolved, but we know at some point during the night, somebody took JonBenet and gave her head trauma, strangled her, put her body in the basement, covered her with a blanket, and police believe they staged the scene overall. And there was a practice ransom note, as well as a two-page ransom note written within the house, that the police believe was written after the murder occurred. Around 5.30 a.m. on December 26th of 1996, JonBenet's mother, Patsy, was the one to find this ransom note, and she didn't call the police for another 20 minutes, I guess. And when she did, police showed up, but obviously did not search the house that well and did not secure the crime scene. So pretty much all the evidence found at the crime scene was completely contaminated, which brings the DNA into question even more. But let's get into some individual pieces of evidence. I just picked four pieces of evidence in this case because they are the ones that are most talked about on social media, in documentaries, just in general when you look at this case. And the first one is going to be the infamous basement window. There was a basement window in the room that JonBenet's body was found in. It was broken, and a lot of people believe that this points to an intruder using that basement window to either come in or get out of the house. But there are actually quite a few issues with this. The window was broken from the outside in, so that could suggest they went in that way, but there was a spiderweb in the window, which shows it really could not have been gone through or used recently. And John, JonBenet's father, admitted to locking himself out of the house once a long time ago and breaking that window. So that kind of gives us an alibi for when the window was broken. And if that's true, it was long before JonBenet was killed. Now, the account of how the window got broken, according to John, does not completely count out that somebody could have used it to gain entry to the home on December 25th or 26th of 1996, but the spider web kind of negates that because a grown person going through a window that small, the window was fairly small, would pretty much get rid of that spider web. That's almost a guarantee. This window was a big piece of evidence highlighted by investigator Lou Smith, who thought that this broken window really put the intruder theory into the running. He even did some kind of experiments where he showed that he could climb down through that window when people didn't think it was possible. I believe by that window, there was a grate on top of it because it was a basement window, 
So it kind of had that little drop down on the ground into the basement window, which sometimes those are covered by grates. And a lot of people thought, well, you couldn't move that grate so you couldn't get in, but he showed that you could. And a lot of people thought because it was small that a grown man could not get through there, but he showed that you could. He actually ended up quitting the police force at one point, the Boulder Police Department, because they would not entertain the idea of an intruder being the culprit in this case. Personally, and you'll realize this when we get into the suspect's portion, I don't believe an intruder was the culprit in this case, and a lot of other people don't. The majority of people, I would say, believe that it was not an intruder, but the family themselves. But the intruder theory hasn't been 100% counted out either. So now let's look into the two-page ransom note. Just a reminder that this ransom note was written in the home and police believe it was written after the murder took place. So I'll read the note and you'll see how strange that is if an intruder did actually break in and then wrote this after the murder. The ransom note says this, quote, Mr. Ramsey, listen carefully. We are a group of individuals that represent a small foreign faction We respect your business, but not the country that it serves. At this time, we have your daughter in our possession. She is safe and unharmed, and if you want her to see 1997, you must follow our instructions to the letter. You will withdraw $118,000 from your account, $100,000 will be in $100 bills, and the remaining $18,000 in $20 bills. Make sure you bring an adequate size attache to the bank. When you get home, you will put the money in a brown paper bag. I will call you between 8 and 10 a.m. tomorrow to instruct you on delivery. The delivery will be exhausting, so I advise you to be well rested. If we monitor you getting the money early, we might call you early to arrange an earlier delivery of the money and hence an earlier pickup of your daughter. Any deviation of my instructions will result in the immediate execution of your daughter. You will also be denied her remains for proper burial. The two gentlemen watching over your daughter do not particularly like you, so I advise you not to provoke them. Speaking to anyone about your situation, such as police, FBI, etc., will result in your daughter being beheaded. If we catch you talking to a stray dog, she dies. If you alert bank authorities, she dies. If the money is in any way marked or tampered with, she dies. You will be scanned for electronic devices, and if any are found, she dies. You can try to deceive us, but be warned that we are familiar with law enforcement countermeasures and tactics. You stand a 99% chance of killing your daughter if you try to outsmart us. Follow our instructions, and you stand a 100% chance of getting her back. You and your family are under constant scrutiny as well as the authorities. Don't try to grow a brain, John. You are not the only fat cat around, so don't think that killing will be difficult. Don't underestimate us, John. Use that good southern common sense of yours. It is up to you now, John. And it is signed Victory SBTC. So if it did happen to be people who had something against John and his businesses, it seems very odd that if they already killed her, they already knew she was dead, they didn't plan on taking her out of the home which we know from later findings, it seems very weird they would take the time to write all this out. They were risking being caught because there was half a page of a practice note written, and then this ransom note was two pages long. So they obviously spent some time doing it. 
It's also kind of odd to lay out all these directions and all these specifics if you know it's never going to get to that point, which really points towards it not being who the letter says it is and it being more of a attempt to try and cover up an accidental murder. So police actually tested this out and found that it would have taken 21 minutes to write this ransom note, not including the practice note that I talked about before. This note was written on Patsy's notebook and with her pen that I believe were kept in the kitchen, but both were put back in the correct spots after the ransom note was written. If you break into that house, you might be able to find a pen and paper, but once again, you're going to risk being caught if you try and put it back because it might take you a while to remember. And why would you even try and put it back? Why not leave it on the stairs where the ransom note was in the first place? Many people have analyzed this note and found a lot of weird things within it. There were a lot of basic words like business and possession that were completely misspelled. There were random words like police and law that had their first letter capitalized when they really shouldn't. And there's lots of little grammatical spelling, basic errors that show whoever was writing this was rushed and nervous, which would make sense for anyone writing the note, really. But if you were feeling rushed and nervous and you were an intruder, why write such a long note? Just get to the gist of it. You don't need all this embellishment in it. You don't need all the different scenarios of if you do this, she dies, that kind of thing. You just need to get the money laid out and kind of the plan, which would have cut down on most of the note. It just contains a lot of stuff that really don't make sense. It kind of seems like whoever wrote it was trying to distract the police or send them on wild goose chases. Like I said, there was a lot of insignificant details added, and that often points towards someone lying. Another thing that was observed by Linda Arndt, who was the detective on the scene for the case, is that the 8 to 10 a.m. time frame when the kidnappers should be calling passed, and no one in the family said anything. Neither of the parents were alarmed by this. Neither of the parents waited by the phone. Nobody really acknowledged that there was no phone call because JonBenet's body was not found until around 1 p.m. So there should have been panic for at least three hours when there had been no phone call by 10 a.m. The next little piece of evidence is the bowl of pineapple and milk. And it's thought to be milk, but some people say it wasn't milk. Police say it was a milk-like substance. So that could have been melted ice cream or cottage cheese. There's a lot of different theories with it. This was placed at the breakfast table, which was not in the kitchen, I believe. It was in a dining room or an end cave somewhere, something like that. And it was placed at Burke's normal seat, and Burke is JonBenet's brother. The parents maintain that they did not put it there. And a lot of people believe that maybe initially they said, oh, we didn't put that there. And then they realized they had the night before, but because there was so much suspicion on the parents already, they didn't want to change up their story because it would have looked very bad. Anyways, neither of the parents admit to putting it there. Patsy's and Burke's are the only fingerprints that are on it. And this 
could make sense if they had admitted to putting it there, but once again, they didn't. JonBenet did have pineapple in her stomach when she was autopsied, which means she ate it not too long before her death. It was estimated that she had eaten it about 30 minutes to two hours before death, which once again does not line up with the timeline the parents gave. They said they got home around 10 p.m., but JonBenet was already asleep and she was put to bed. So she really had no time to eat the pineapple when she got home. And based on the autopsy, experts believe she was killed around midnight. So she would have had to eat this between 10 p.m. and about 11.30 p.m., which really doesn't add up with the timeline. So this pineapple and milk-like substance was a pretty large portion. It was in a large, quote-unquote, fancy bowl, and it was with a serving spoon, along with a glass of water with a tea bag in it. So this doesn't seem like something an adult would do or prepare for a child. You don't use a huge bowl, you don't use a serving spoon to eat, and if you're making tea, you generally put that in a mug, not a glass, since it's not as sturdy for hot water. So a lot of people believe that a child put this meal together that night. I believe it was found that only Burke's fingerprints were on the glass, whereas on the bowl were Burke's and Patsy's. 92% of households that join Peloton early in the year are still active a year later. Yeah, if you like cycling to EDM. Not just EDM. Try cycling to Broadway hits, take a scenic hike in Iceland on our treadmill, or row to some 80s jams. Because I have so much free time. Whether you have 30 minutes or just five, Peloton can fit any schedule. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton tread, row, or bikes risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. This bowl was still pretty full, which points to someone being distracted by something. You don't generally, even if you're a kid, make food and leave all of it there. You might eat half and then leave it there and go do something else, but to leave pretty much all of the food you prepared there points to something happening to where you do not get to finish it. Through the enzymes in the pineapple, I'm assuming, Police were able to tell that this was fresh pineapple, not canned pineapple. So that brings into question, was it already cut up in the fridge, which is very possible. But if not, that means Burke could not have cut it up on his own. Also, a lot of people find it odd that pineapple and milk was supposedly a thing in their household because the acid of the pineapple can break down dairy, which causes curdling and causes stomach pain. But I brought this up in a Facebook group, and apparently a lot of people eat it this way, so I guess it doesn't always cause curdling and stomach pain, but it can. The last piece of evidence we're going to look at is the flashlight. This flashlight was sitting on the kitchen counter when investigators were there, and it can be seen in screenshots from the crime scene video. There were no batteries in it. So it doesn't make much sense that it was out. If it was one that belonged to police, you would think there would be batteries in it. And if it was the family's and it was out to search the house or something like that, 
you would think there would be batteries in it. So that part was pretty odd. There was also no fingerprints, but obviously someone had to have brought it out, which could mean it was wiped down. But then we have to ask why it was wiped down. Was it connected to the murder or does it have somebody else's fingerprints who wasn't mentioned being in the house that night? There are a lot of questions surrounding why there were no fingerprints on the flashlight. According to some sources, when the police department actually took this flashlight for evidence, it was lost for a while, but the police department denies this, which makes sense. They wouldn't want to openly admit that they lost a piece of evidence in one of America's most infamous cases, but it was left on the counter all day on the first day of the investigation, and when no police claimed it as theirs, It was put into evidence. Whether it was lost for a while after or not is unknown. Patsy and John both deny bringing out that flashlight, and they deny even having that flashlight, but it had to be from somewhere. At first, they did say they recognized it, but they later recanted this statement. The drawer, I believe in the kitchen, that usually held a flashlight was open and contained no flashlight. So that kind of connects maybe this flashlight was the one that was normally in that drawer. Allegedly, it also fit JonMenet's skull fracture. So this flashlight could have been what caused her skull fracture. But right now, other things can't be ruled out. However, the autopsy and medical examiners did state that this was a skull fracture from being hit with something rather than falling onto something, because it was so forceful. So now we're going to move into suspects. And I really only have three suspects, which is Patsy, John, and Burke. And this is all alleged because nothing is proven, but I want to talk about it all. So first we're going to start with Patsy Ramsey, because there is the most evidence pointing to her being involved in the murder. It was her notepad and pen that were used for the ransom note, and they were both put back in the correct place after being used. Only Patsy's fingerprints were on the note, which could make sense because she was the one who grabbed it and read it, but why did John not read it, and why did whoever wrote it seemingly not touch it. They obviously had to have touched it, so their fingerprints definitely should have been on the note. The practice note mentioned Patsy in it, while the real note did not mention her name at all, almost like they were trying to distance Patsy from the note because it mentions John multiple times. Patsy was also known to like to use acronyms, and the ransom note was signed SBTC. She liked to use exclamation marks and indents, both of which were also in the ransom notes. In the Ramsey's book on the case, they said that they buried JonBenet with a scarf, a bracelet, a tiara, and a cross, which SBTC. Not saying that has anything to do with it, it could just be a very weird coincidence, but it is definitely a coincidence. Her handwriting is the only one that could not be ruled out. John's and Burke's were both ruled out, but Patsy's test was found to be inconclusive. 
the housekeeper for the Ramses at the time was working with them for a long time, but the Ramses pointed the finger at her pretty quick and said, you know what, she could be a suspect in our daughter's murder. And they just kind of threw her under the bus right away. So later, this housekeeper tried to write a book, but the Ramses, being rich, having good lawyers, shut this down pretty quick, so only one chapter of this book is available online. However, in this chapter, the housekeeper says that Patsy often used the word hence, which is used in the note, and often told John, use that good southern common sense. She also said fat cat a lot, because this is what Patsy's mother often called her and John after they got rich. Attaché had the correct accent, which Patsy always did. She was very punctual in her speaking and writing. So these are phrases that she often used that a lot of people, a lot of other people did not use. So it is just mounting suspicion on her at this point. It was also noted that when police arrived, Patsy was wearing the same clothes as the day before. She was in the public eye. They were upper-class people. She did not do this. She did not wear her clothes two days in a row. That was not like her, so many people found this very odd. Patsy's paintbrush was used in the garage, which was used to ultimately kill John Bonet by strangling. Patsy's fingerprints were on the pineapple bowl found in the kitchen, even though Patsy denies ever putting it there. Now, many people believe that this could be because she unloaded the dishwasher or did some dishes or moved it around. Doesn't seem like she did dishes or unloaded the dishwasher. They had a full-time housekeeper, so that doesn't really add up. Maybe she moved it around, but... Fingerprints could also point to her being the one to serve the pineapple that night. John Bonet, although six years old, was said to have a bedwetting problem, and Patsy liked the image of being the perfect family, the perfect parents, the perfect children, and bedwetting kind of went against that. The housekeeper that I mentioned before who wrote the book stated that Patsy had punished John Bonet for bedwetting in the past, And she believes it could have gone too far this time, and Patsy could have hit her a little too hard in the head with the flashlight, which would explain the flashlight, would explain a lot of other things in the case as well. Police also found no sign of an intruder and no footsteps in the snow outside, which points to whoever killed JonBenet being in the house and staying in the house. And once again, I have to mention that Patsy did not note that the ransom note's 10 a.m. deadline had passed. She wasn't frantically sitting by the phone waiting for it to ring after the 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. deadline passed. She didn't say anything. She didn't seem worried, which is extremely odd for a parent who is worried about their daughter being with kidnappers and possibly being killed. Then we can move on to John, which is JonBenet's father. I'm going to mention again that no footprints were found in the snow and there was no sign of an intruder. This applies to both John, Patsy, and Burke being suspects because they were in the house and they were supposed to be in the house so they could stay in the house and it not be suspicious. 
When John was asked to search the house, he went straight to the basement, straight to the actual room where JonBenet's body was found. This could have just been an accident, but it wasn't, from my understanding, it wasn't the first room in the basement. It was a little hard to find, so it seems kind of odd that he would go there right away because it said he found JonBenet's body just five minutes after he started searching which doesn't 100% point towards him being the murderer, but could point towards him at least knowing where her body was at that time. So he found his daughter's body and he carried her upstairs and removed the duct tape from her mouth. This all contaminated evidence, which if you're a frantic parent, could be seen and explained away that you were trying to help your child, but if you're under suspicion, it could also be seen and explained as you were trying to cover up evidence that might be there. Because once you contaminate that evidence, it really won't hold up in court. So if you did do something, you can just say, well, yeah, I, my DNA is there because I grabbed her from the basement. Linda Arndt, the first detective on the scene, stated that she found it very odd how John carried JonBenet upstairs. Apparently, he carried her away from his body with his arms outstretched instead of cradling her like many would expect if you were a worried father trying to help your daughter that you thought still had a chance. Another thing to mention for John is that he didn't say anything about the 10 a.m. deadline passing either. He wasn't worried. He didn't even mention it, just like Patsy. He also made arrangements to fly to Atlanta only hours after JonBenet's body was found. That is where the family was from, so it could make some sense, but police had told them not to leave the state or the area, so it looks a little suspicious at that point. Also, it's said that around 10.30 a.m., John left the Ramsey home and was gone for quite some time. It is said that he went to go get mail, but it was discovered that the mail was delivered to the home that day, so he really has no alibi for that time. There really is no evidence of this next thing, but, I mean, there's no concrete evidence for any of this. This is all alleged. Nobody has been proven guilty in the case. However, many believe JonBenet Ramsey was sexually abused, which often points to an older male in the home or close to the victim. And many believe maybe she was being abused by her father, and that is why she was murdered, to cover it up. However, John has adamantly denied this, and there is no public evidence to state that this actually happened. Our last suspect is JonBenet's brother, Burke, who I believe was around 10 at the time JonBenet was killed, 10 or maybe even younger. Many believe he prepared the pineapple and milk that was on the table when police came because there was a serving spoon, it was a large portion. It didn't look like an adult served it because it didn't make sense, and it was at his normal spot at the table. In his interview, he avoided the topic of pineapple in the bowl, but shown recognition of it in the interview. I haven't watched the full interview. This is from what other people have said, but apparently he kind of avoided the topic, but shown that he knew what they were talking about. 
He was very shielded by his parents, which makes sense. He was young, but if he was innocent, why would you not want the police to have more interviews with him so that he doesn't have to live with this suspicion his entire life like he is now? FBI profiler Clement and Scotland Yard behavioral analysis Richard's suspicions lean towards Burke. Basically, in one of the documentaries on the case, both of these individuals, without saying it, said that Burke was their prime suspect in JonBenet's murder. During Burke's Dr. Phil interview that happened just a few years ago, so he was an adult at the time, people believe that he has a very creepy smile, but on the other hand, a lot of people believe he's just socially awkward, which made him feel weird doing that interview, and I understand that as well. If he did kill JonBenet, one or both parents could have constructed this cover-up so that they didn't have to lose both of their children that night, which really makes a lot of sense. And obviously, if Burke did kill her, which is all alleged, then he would not have been able to construct a cover-up like that. He would have needed one, if not both, of his parents. So thank you for looking at some of the specific pieces of evidence and suspects in the JonBenet Ramsey case with me. Once again, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, it was the timeline and the autopsy, as well as some police beliefs. So that'll give you a better overview of the case. This was more detailed things within the case. Remember to follow us at Great Unsolved on Twitter, at Great Unsolved Pod on Instagram. You can search Great Unsolved on Facebook and find our Facebook page and our Facebook group. There's also a Patreon for the Great Unsolved where there is tons of Patreon-only episodes and other incentives for every tier. All of those links will be in the description box below, along with a link to the new podcast I'm doing with my husband called Infinite Intrigue which is an oddities podcast just covering weird stuff. I'll see you next week for a new unsolved case, and I will be starting to do video podcasts as well. So that should be starting next week. Stay safe and have a great rest of your week. (laughs) 